Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your guest host for today, Jason Rosenbaum. Chris McDaniel is still on assignment. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis. And the General Assembly's biggest Wilco fan... <laughs> John Lamping. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for joining us right. today. Tweedy, Jeff Tweedy's on tour this summer, actually. He's down in Columbia this summer. No, that's the reason you're not running for re-election, to follow uh, Wilco that's on right. tour, They have right? a European tour, and I think they're doing Antarctica this yeah. year. So. Now, <laughs> a little bit of a bio here. Um, uh, John Lamping is a Republican, uh, represents the 24th District in central St. Louis County, and you opted against running for re-election. Right. You served one term, uh, one in the Republican wave in 2010, and you're leaving. So that's one of the reasons we really were excited to get, <laughs> because you were known as one of the more outspoken uh, Republican s- state senators as it was. Right. So we're hoping that you will be even more outspoken. Unleashed now, okay. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's kind of the reason we wanted to have you on, because right. you're finishing uh, your last year of, of your, your, your term in the Senate. You, you kind of have a different perspective than some lawmakers because you didn't come from the House. You didn't come from like an executive branch agency like Kurt Schaefer did. You're just essentially like a ordinary guy who became right. a senator. Well, a world of finance. You, you, yeah. You, you're, you're, yeah. Okay, you're an extraordinary lands. guy who became a senator. Very but, good. But, okay, just a very simple question right off the bat. What was kind of your experience in, in this crazy upper chamber? Well, it's a— I approached it kind of like I was volunteering for a, um, a charitable organization, you know, so I, I'm very philanthropically involved with my time. And so how I actually presented myself to the Republican Party in uh, January of 2009 was I volunteered to run for an office. And then ultimately they, they asked me to run for this office. And I didn't ask a lot now, of the do details. Now, you think <laughs> that they actually thought you were the sacrificial lamb? Because at the time, the 24th District was considered, well, was mm-hmm. Democratic leaning. Yeah, it was described to me as democratic leaning. And for me, it was I just trust. I mean, I trust people uh, and I had offered I'd offered the willingness to serve. They actually actually was they asked me to consider running for county executive. Um, and I said, that's fine as long as I can uh, do it and keep my job. And they sought out legal opinion and said, you couldn't Could, do that. Right. Couldn't do that. Yeah, nope. You, you, so I, then they came back to me in the summertime and said, well, what do you, what do you think about this office? And I, and I said, well, do you think I have a chance of uh, is it a good office to serve in? And they said yes. And so I said, fine. Now, you ran against Democrat Barbara Frazier, who had been the president of the St. Louis County Council and was highly favored early on. Sure. But you got some key endorsements from the firefighters and others. So, Well, I did. But I think that I think there was two two or three critical things in okay. that race. The okay. first, first and foremost, the fact that there was a primary. Uh, a very, uh, very uh, contentious primary. So you between, had on uh, the Democrats, between on the Frazier side. and now Sam Page, who is who is likely to become a county right. council member, who had recent, who had just in two thousand and eight ran a statewide campaign for lieutenant governor. Yes, correct. Um, so he had big name ID and was very well funded. And between the two of them, they spent well over a million dollars in the primary. And and I think I got for purposes of me winning the general election, I got the better. Barb was the better opponent because Barb was more easily cast as a very, very liberal. Uh, her views were easy to understand. She had a very long record, voting record, both in the state and the county level. So uh, it was easier to con- to contrast, um, you know, me being a complete outsider to her being, um, you know, a very specific type of Democrat. Now, when you actually won that election and became a legislator, did it did it meet any of your expectations, or did it completely blow your mind? Essentially, uh, well, I would say this: I, I just. You know, I went down to take it all in to understand and observe. So I would suggest the first year was just doing just that um, and trying to understand how the process works. But from that, really about halfway through the first year, I started to 
engage in what I was involved in, similar to um, things that I've done in the private sector over and over again. And uh, and and I was so I was not did not blow my mind. Um, the, uh, I, had, I developed very quickly some very strong feelings for uh, the change, the reform that needs to come to state government. I, uh, I, I feel uh, from the very beginning, there's, it's, it's, it's a misuse of time. It's, the, the session should be much shorter, much more focused. Um, I was so, but I'm in the deep minority in that in that view. So what was interesting to me is is how how embedded whatever you call how we do state government. Um, as a, a systematic approach to state government is deeply entrenched in the General Assembly, and uh, and I think it's completely inefficient. It's, it's an, it doesn't serve the Missouri citizens well, um, and I did whatever I could to try to change it, not with a lot of success because those that are in it, they like how the process works. Now, what was your biggest surprise once you got in there and had been there for a few months, maybe right. your first session, what was the biggest surprise? Something that, that you totally did not expect once you got in the legislature? How, how few of the ideas and legislation that is pursued are actually the ideas of the legislators. I, uh, I, I have lots of my own ideas. Uh, okay. You know, I try to, to understand as much as I can about issues. I have political philosophies and ideas. The vast majority of legislation I filed, and in some years, last year, I think I, I was part of 45 different pieces of legislation. The vast majority of my legislation, 90 plus percent, are my ideas, are um, ideas that I choose from a universe of ideas and I put forward and try to legislate. And it's just the opposite. I, if you go legislator by legislator and you ask them, well, well where did this come from? It always came from somewhere else. It never, it was shocked me that they didn't have their own ideas. Did it come from lobbyists? Did it come from groups like ALEC? Where did it come from? It I came, mean, labor? Uh, the, the whole, I mean, the, well, I, I don't know the percentage. I'm, this would be an interesting study. So much of the legislation comes from inside of government. It's governmental agencies that have lobbyists, that have legislative fixes that they need, that okay. they, they don't get reconciled through the rules-making process. Okay. And then they, you know, they file, their bills that are filed, oh, this came to us from the of agriculture. This came from us from Department of Revenue. This came from us. And it's amazing how much of the time and energy is spent on those things. And if you look at um, what percentage of all the things we look at, we, uh, just a kitchen table, mom and pop sitting down and you explain to them, well, we're pursuing this issue. 90 plus percent has no impact on their lives directly or, or, or such that they understand. So I, I was really surprised by how few ideas. My second year, I actually got some of my ideas to the floor to shorten the session to 12 weeks um, to... Uh, uh, and, and things like that. And people say, well, where did this idea come from? I said, well, it's my own idea. Like, what do you mean it's your own idea? <laughs> now, now, let me ask you a question that came. That, this is a question that arose from the person that you might have run against if you had run uh -huh. for re-election, Jill Shoup. She claimed, and I think some Democrats claim in that district, that you ran as this somewhat moderate candidate and you became more conservative over time. Right. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that criticism right. before. Is that is that accurate or not? No, accurate? no, no. Here's here's how I ran. I ran as uh, competent and capable. I ran on the things that I have done as an adult, uh, how I you know proceed in my life. Um, you know, uh, I'm thoughtful. I mean, I can sit down. You and I, Jason, can completely disagree on an issue. I'll ask you what your thesis is. I'll tell you what my thesis is, and we'll disagree, and we'll walk away and say, well, I disagree with him, but he's a you know nice enough guy. That's what I ran on. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't run on. There was no, um, I'm a moderate, um, and you can trust me to be a moderate. I think what happened was is that the, the people that decided to vote for me, they knew all those, well, they knew a lot about, a lot of people already knew me, and they, they looked at the things that I had done, respected the things I had done. If I had a chance to sit down and talk to them or hear, you know, they had a chance to hear from me directly, they said, well, this is a knowledgeable and well-thought 
out person, and that's who I'd like to see represent me. Now, because because I think like one of the turning points for your legislative service was last year when you filibustered the, the transportation tax. Was that last year or was that two years that ago? That was last year. That was last year, now, 2013 for our listeners. It should be noted that, you know, Jill Shoup actually opposes the transportation tax too, and you actually won a lot of Democratic bans for doing that, but that seemed to be kind of a shift in your your yeah well that i think that's the one that's like that's what people point to and say well look you went against leadership and all that yeah because as a backdrop um, there was there are there are many republican leaning business groups who are for right the tax here's here's what i was trying to say it was kind of like your in your first couple of years i think you were like a builder you were putting forth a lot of legislation your own ideas and you were passing a lot of them I think from that point on, you, while you were still putting forth your ideas, you also became more adept at filibustering things and opposing things, not only the transportation tax, but also Medicaid expansion right. as well. That's just been kind of my observation of kind of your of your your posture in the legislature. Well, here's the thing is when I got to the General Assembly, there was a, a very, very strong filibuster. Uh, there was eight or nine or ten people that had long been in right. the General Assembly. And if anyone paid attention, there's no reason why they should pay attention. I voted with those guys all the time. I didn't need to be part of the filibuster. The filibuster was aptly handled by that universe of people. And Jason Crowell was Jason, probably one of the best filibusters in the Senate history. And Jason and I were very close. We used to meet um, almost right away. I mean, I recognize like, part of what you do is you, you recognize uh, talent and skill. This is a private sector. You recognize who knows what they know, and you seek them out and you seek their counsel. So from uh, most of my first two years, at the end of the Monday session, Jason and I would meet for an hour or two. And I would kind of understand his thinking. And But the first two years I was down there, uh, they didn't need me to filibuster. There was plenty of people to filibuster. That's true. But if you saw how I voted, I voted right alongside them. Now, the thing, um, you know, in, in my second year, I sponsored Senate Bill 749, which is essentially the Hobby Lobby bill, which the, Hob- uh, the yes. Supreme Court is going to rule. Yeah, um, which, which deals with whether or not companies are required to right. provide uh, – contraceptive coverage. And most people think that the Hobby Lobby will prevail. When Hobby Lobby prevails, then Senate Bill 749 will become the law of the land. Now, I sponsored that bill uh, two weeks after the administration came out with a ruling on Friday in January of 2011. And I had a certain number of people come to me and say, well, you're a moderate Republican in a pro-choice district. And what are you doing on, you know, sponsoring the Hobby Lobby bill? I said, when people asked me that as I was a candidate, where are you on these issues? I said, I'm where the Catholic Church is. Mm-hmm. Well, guess who's on that that uh, that lawsuit is the Catholic Church is too. And guess who was a decisive vote in overturning that in the House? One of the people who was running for state senate this year, Ed Schieffer. So That's right. You know, well, I, I was also very proud of the fact that both the minority leader and another Democrat in the Senate voted to override the governor. And the minority leader at the time was Victor Callahan. Correct. Now, one of the things you talked about on off the air that I wanted to because this kind of fits in this is you know like like Jason was saying and like during the transportation tax filibuster where you had these business people who were like. Wait a minute. He's from the 24th district. He's supposed to be representing, you know, more business, moderate interests. And as you said, what you, you said, you were saying that during the redistricting in 2011, which is a year after you got elected, you had some, uh, you you discovered some things that you didn't know when you were running. You want to right, talk well, again? I, I volunteered to run, and I was told it was left leaning, but we can win. But when we were doing the redistricting, you actually you start the process. Where you they you hand it your your existing Senate district with a Republican score on it. And I saw it, it was 40.8 Republican, which 
which which, which meant that it was almost sixty percent Democratic. And I told I told you I said, look, you guys, I didn't know you when you recommended I do this, but if we're going to be friends going forward, you can't ever have me do something like this again. But uh, the the reason I bring this up because this does offer a backdrop to what we were just talking about when you started getting heat from business leaders and major, you know, re, some Republican groups like the Chamber and others because of your stance on like the Medicaid expansion, which the Chamber wants, and um, the transportation tax, and, which, of course, tax credits. I mean, you were and also, tax exemptions, right? And, right. Oh. So my 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 point being, you got some additional heat because you had some of the supporters of those issues were saying, "Wait a minute," as you were just saying that you were supposed to be in, you were supposed to be taking this stance because of the district, and you were saying, "No, I'm taking this stance because this is what I believe." Correct. And to the extent, uh, I think that. Um, I think that the organizations that lobby for "quote unquote" business or the chamber, I, I think that we do. Mis- we, it's a mistake to say they represent business interests. They represent certain business interests, and in my four years, their their efforts were almost exclusively to either um, to carve themselves out uh, of tax liability, uh, either directly through tax credits or through tax sales tax exemptions, or to pursue tax. Uh, you know, again, to to uh, pursue more tax credits. Um, and I think for every one business that agrees with their agenda, there's dozens of businesses that um, that I would be more ideally suited, my philosophy would be more ideally suited for them, which is just get government out of the way, make the tax code simple, um, have uh, have the playing field be a great economic playing field, but have it play a small, much smaller role in in uh, the the economy itself. And uh, but that's not consistent with lobbying. Lobbying you can't lobby for less government. You don't get paid a lot of money to, to have government do less. You get paid money to have lob- uh, You get paid money as a lobbyist to have government do more or do specific things to the advantage of your clients. Now, so. now I want to ask a more general question mm-hmm. about legislative service, and it's been a question I've been asking uh, several departing lawmakers. I asked mm-hmm. this to Julie Justice. I asked this to Rod Jetton after I read his his book. I'm kind of getting the sense that there are some people in the legislature who kind of let get the culture of the Capitol get to them. And they put their family and their livelihood and everything in the backseat of legislative service and the trappings that come with it. Did you kind of observe that? Did you yes. fall into the trappings of, of legislative well, no, no, no. as there's, well? There's, um, well, there's, the reason he's leaving yeah, would show otherwise. Family. I mean, yeah, it's, no, it's like, I think last time I was saying, I told you, we, we raise our children. It's God, family, country, that order. That's how it works. That was and, exactly what you said in your last yeah, show. And, that's, uh, and so there was no way that... You know, that being in the General Assembly was going to impact my relationships with, in my faith, and my family, and uh, but no, I think it's a tragic, uh, it's a tragedy that occurs over and over again. Um, the the culture of the General Assembly, you have too many people that are either uh, they're trying to become the person they want to become through uh, through their time as a legislator. Uh, there's so it could just be for self esteem. Uh, I think it's a career builder for a lot of people. You have a lot of I, I kind of like the two dominant groups are kind of the late 20, early 30-somethings in the House that really haven't established themselves in the private sector, but through their service, they'll, they'll you know, come out of the process in their late 30s, early 40s, where they have a big foot in the door somewhere. Uh, then the second biggest group is all the retired people. You know, so you're retired from all these other <laughs> careers. You, you've be, you're the person you want to become. And quite frankly, the advantage of the retired people is that they're, they're not, they've already self-actualized. They, they are who they want to, they're, they're more likely to be volunteering their time. And those, and those, uh, those are the dominant uh, forces. And there's too many examples you can see where people have spent 10, 12 years, 15 years, and now they're a high-paid lobbyist. 
um, the whole idea that people are pursuing higher office. Well, very few actually do pursue higher office. Mm -hmm. um, you know, part of you look at a state like Virginia, same size population, similar size general assembly. Well, actually, much smaller house. They meet one year for twelve weeks. They do a two-year budget. They meet in the second year for eight weeks. They do legislation the second second session. The, the changes like that would change the culture dramatically. You know, we're one of those. Most of the states. Um, are, there's a dozen or so states that it's a full-time job. You make $70,000. You're there 10 months out of the year. Then there's a, most of the other states, it's, it's a much smaller time that you spend in, in uh, the capital. And we're somewhere in the middle. And it's, yeah. I, I think it's, it's a particularly inefficient way to, to, to run government. And, but it, it, it lends a lot of credence to the culture doing damage. Be, because the reason I asked this question, I was wondering one of the, the sub-questions of this is, whether the the basic tenets of legislative service by by that means the length of time they the session is there every year the amount of money people get paid whether that causes a certain type of person to run as opposed to another type of person i mean i think you're somewhat of an outlier i don't think a lot of financial executives who are successful would stop what they're doing and run for the legislature it is basically a lot of young people and retired people on aggregate. Right. And if we had a 12-week, eight-week session, there's you get a, a different caliber of people would run. It's one thing to go to your employer and say, look, I'm going to do this for 90 days. An employer might say, okay, well, that's 90 days. We'll figure it out. You, you say five months, and I don't think Every year. Every yeah. year. And they're getting paid under 35000 So, mm -hmm. I mean, that really, I mean, if you need to raise a family and you're in your 30s and you have a career, I mean, people are probably not going to leave their job to run for the legislature unless they are really politically active or super ambitious. Yes. So. Now, was there any particular groups? You mentioned that the two blocks, which are the retirees and the uh, young up-and-comers. Did you have any observations about which group was more effective or um, if term limits played a role in some of this? I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, um, again, I, I just observing the House from kind of the outside looking in, but uh, the, the challenge you have is that in order to move a legislative agenda, you need to be moving towards leadership as fast as you possibly can. They, they set the, the agenda, and um, they decide what direction you're going to go in. I know we'll talk tax policy a little bit later on. Um, they decided that we were going to do tax policy the way we did it this year. So if, if you get into, in, into office and you don't jump immediately into leadership, then your ability to set the agenda is, re, is relatively limited. In the Senate, um, what you do have the ability to do, and it's, I think Missourians are very, should be very grateful for the fact, is you do have the ability to check the agenda. And that's the idea that Missouri is a very strong filibuster. And mm -hmm. it's a very important role to play. Uh, and I underappreciated that coming in, just what that meant. And the fact that the agenda is being set by leadership, and leadership is so, so very often being dictated to by the funding sources, the special interest, that um, if that agenda is not necessarily in the Missourians' best interest, um, I can't change the agenda, but I can stop the agenda. Now, this is something we were talking about offline when I was at the Capitol, but it was, I thought it was very interesting that after you leave, regardless of whether you're replaced by Jill Shoup or one of the Republican mm -hmm. candidates, the amount of filibusterers, quote-unquote, could be down to two, depending on what right. happens in, for example, the St. Charles County race to replace Scott Roop. Um, and potentially, if Rob Schaff wins re-election, I would assume that he's probably favored to win re-election, but who knows how much the Missouri Hospital Association is going to yeah, throw in there. Yeah, he's a state senator from Western right. uh, Missouri. Missouri for, so yeah. what, if there are only, if it is Rob Schaff and Ed Emery and nobody else being filibusters, what do you think that will mean for it's the a problem. Senate? It's a problem. And, and I think what's happened is, is that the 
the establishment's approach, and again, I, I, the filibuster, uh, they're, they're fiscal conservatives. The, the, my four years has been all about fiscal okay. conservatism. Okay. So there's a, there's, a, there's a big change in the Republican Party nationwide and in Missouri, too. And I would say pre-financial meltdown, conservatism in Missouri, cons- we think Republican cons- conservative Republicans, there's, there's two boxes they check. They check the right to life box and they check the Second Amendment box. Okay. If you check those two boxes, then you're conservative. Okay. And then you're Republicans, so you've checked the pro-business box. And we talked before what more and more what pro-business means. Pro-business means, you know, cronyism. And but what happened these last four years uh, is that there's a, the most – all the energy in the party, both the state level and the federal level, is about fiscal conservatism. Are you fiscally conservative? What does it mean to be fiscally conservative? That means you're going to spend less. That means you're, you're not going to do cronyism. And so um, what's happened is, is that the filibuster was very big in 11 and 12. But what happens when you're part of the filibuster is the establishment doesn't let you move any of your legislation. Now. So, so well, you, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Give some details of where you had something blocked because of oh, what well, you're well, filibustering? So, uh, I think Jason mentioned earlier. So, uh, you know, I was able to move forward lots of ideas my first year. I mean, I had six bills I sponsored past my freshman year, unprecedented. Um, had the override bill in my second year, you know. You also handled the arch tax um, enabling vote as well. well. Actually, I did not. I did not handle that. I actually just facilitated getting right, through right, right. the filibuster. Correct. For that, different reasons. We talk about that. That's what I but meant. My, my point is, is that is no, but that was that's not my idea. That's, that's that, that was that's, not your idea. That was, but continue. But my point is to say is that. Um, it was. I mean, I had ideas like I wanted to eliminate uh, the. I wanted to eliminate race from the consideration yes. of adoption. That's my own idea. That got floor time. I, I tried endlessly to do ethics reform. I actually managed to get floor time on some of these things. Now, uh, the filibuster you're referring to happened the last week of my third year, um, so that there was no time to kill my legislation because that it was the end of the third year. Going into this year, we knew. It was an uphill climb. Actually, what I did is now I did, your filibuster that you're talking about right. was the transportation tax in 2013. Correct? It was. A, it was at that okay. time. It was a one percent sales tax to go to statewide ballot, and uh, and myself and two Republicans filibustered in the last correct. week and killed it. Correct. And now I will tell you this: is that when the session was over, I walked up to the proponents of the bill. I looked at them. I said, "Look, I know you're mad at me." We're going to keep going forward, keep talking, keep, you know, we're going to get to a solution. Actually, I came up with a solution over the summer, which was to redirect existing sales tax. I took my idea, this would be a constitutional change. Right. I took my idea to people who were for the sales tax, MOTA, members of the Missouri uh, Alliance for Transportation, told them my idea. They love my idea. They wanted my idea to be the idea. Okay. But my idea was never going to see the light of day. Why? Uh, well, one is because... It wasn't enough money. It was about four or five hundred million dollars. It wasn't eight hundred million dollars. And two, um, there are many of those in the. Mo- um, it would have required um, that we don't cut taxes. We just redirect, uh, rather than cut taxes, we redirect money to roads. And there are people inside of um, the universe of people who are going to build all these roads. They want the tax cut too. So they're all LLCs. They wanted their taxes cut. And they want the state to spend $8 billion to build roads in the industry that they're Well, in. that brings up a, a timely topic because now a version of the transportation tax is on the ballot. It's three-fourths of one set, so that's, not that, one set. And that all came – so what happened – what we continue is I kept okay. pushing and pushing negotiation behind the scenes. Let's talk. Let's get to a deal. So finally, we brokered a deal with about six weeks to go to, that would allow the sales tax to leave the Senate. That was a stumbling block. And then in exchange for that, there was a bunch of other things which I won't disclose, but there was one of which was Ooh, the th- oh, secret. Oh, come on. Come on. Now we you're actually, They actually re- reduced the sales tax to three-quarters of a percent. Yeah, that yeah. was part of the deal, too. Now, when I was talking with Senator Emery 
he said one of the reasons why he let it through is because he just frankly doesn't think it's going to pass anyways, and he wanted to spend his energy on less on other things. Do you mm-hmm. think this has any chance of passing in August? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I I, I, um, I know the power of money. So I know that there's going to be five plus billion dollars spent on roads if it passes. And so the universe of people that would benefit by that, uh, for them to invest five or ten million dollars to get it to pass. I mean, who's going to I mean, what changed between last year and this year is the municipal league is official. They're they're against the they bill. They are now. against, against it, it. Yes. Now, whether or not they can mount a campaign or not, they need to raise money to mount a campaign. Uh, my opposition f- towards it was it just didn't make any sense at all. I had filed number of different bills that would raise sales taxes, raise cigarette taxes, reduce income taxes, that would some of the money would go to mm-hmm. I mean I, I was trying to do like I thought we should do tax policy. We should do overarching, thoughtful tax policy. And we did we chose not to do that. We chan- we to- chose to do things like in individual silos. So and the, the big things we did this year which make no sense I mean, individually, some of the pieces you might like, but cumulatively, they make no sense. So the one was we we voted to reduce taxes 620 million beginning in 17, fully phased in five or six or seven years thereafter. Okay, fine, we reduced the size of government. That's what that that was. But at the same time, we were doing that over here. We were going to go to a vote of the people to raise taxes initially to raise taxes 800 million dollars. We're going to raise taxes immediately. We're going to raise sales taxes immediately. And then with the idea being that somewhere in the future, we would slowly start to lower taxes. But the net effect, the three-quarters of a percent tax, what that does is it equalizes the taxes eventually. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, government doesn't grow. Now, um, and then the third thing we did, we got very little press, is we, we voted to, these guys voted to raise our debt ceiling by 45% to primarily use the bond proceeds to fund deferred maintenance projects, which they publicly acknowledged they had not budgeted for correctly all the time that we were in, we were in the majority. Mm-hmm. So think about it. Republican Party voted to raise taxes now, cut them later, borrow money now to make up for the fact we hadn't budgeted appropriately. All those pieces put together um, make no sense to me. And that's why, um, you know, so I had I had hoped we'd move towards like an overarching, consistent, thoughtful uh, policy. We, now, we did not. Now, that, that leads me to my next question. I think it was a question you wanted, uh, Joe wanted to ask about the governor and kind of his philosophy, because I remember he put out a press release where he Obviously, was it was it was mainly against the tax cut, but he also criticized the sales tax increase, which breaking news he now officially opposes. He also criticized uh, tax credits yeah. uh, such as low income and historic. Which and, you- and and uh, myself, um, a, the fiscal conservatives during the special session for Boeing, mm. we we negotiated to let the Boeing credits go through in exchange for the government right. effort to help us cap the tax the yeah. tax credits. And he also criticized bonding and um, uh, education. Now, obviously, you were on the pro side of the school transfer bill, but all those three other things, I read it. I was like, is this a press release from John Lamping or from the governor? It seems like, even though I you, I know you haven't been on the same page with the governor. Does he share some of your similar philosophies, think, or not really? Well, I, I think it. What we the, all the all of the um, well, he was for the Boeing, uh, obviously. Tax rate, so yes, so, but but no, I think it, it didn't take a very sophisticated uh, thought to look at all the pieces and put them together and say, how does this make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. You know, who who is for raising taxes now? I mean, who's for raising taxes now and cutting them later? I mean, how often do we hear from the from D.C.? Oh, we're going to raise spending now, but we're going to lower it later. I mean, the OMB score in years nine and ten are all right. positive. I mean, this, it, it, so that's ridiculous. And I think for the governor to say that's ridiculous, you're going to raise taxes now and lower them later. That just that doesn't make any sense. And then the, the bonding thing, the same thing. And I mean, the good news, I I, I think they're going to veto the bonding for the deferred maintenance project. So, well, but does that hurt? 
some things that need to be done in the state? I mean, and what would be your alternate proposal of how to deal with some of that deferred maintenance and be yeah. tax credits? I do want to talk to you about that sure. because you and the governor were on the same side as trying to get rid of them. Well, rid of most well, of them. Well, well, I'm interested in your I don't take think it was that. getting rid of them, but I think it was it's severely. Caps. Severe, it was commission caps. caps. Yeah, commission caps. And I didn't mean to say severely, but curtailing them right. considerably. Because right. they now cost the state more than $600 million a year. Do you think with the tax cut now be starting to be phased in a few years, is that going to put more pressure on to get rid of some of those tax credits or to curtail them since if they're rising as revenues are being – Reduced because of tax cuts, does that put pressure to change the tax credit no, policy? No, uh, it, it will take an extraordinary effort by the executive branch to uh, to put caps on the two largest tax credit Why? programs. Which is low income and historic. Right. But yeah. continue. Right. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Um, Why? All by themselves. Okay, now what I would expect you to see, and what's always been put forward each of the last couple of years, is that you will see the creation or extension of a series of new tax credits. And that's how you'll get to a cap. So it, it'll be a faux cap. It'll be a, a, a not a very meaningful cap. Um, heck, that legislation was pursued this year. The uh, the bill that came out of the House was de was it was uh, supposed to be a, a jobs bill, which that drives me crazy. I mean, the whole idea of government spends money is the jobs bill it drives me absolutely crazy. But that that proposal was to to introduce four or five or six new tax credit programs, put slight caps on the <laughs> existing programs. But it would it would uh, it would spend twenty five million dollars or more the very first year. So uh, what I think we'll have you'll see no you'll see no um, movement at all in terms of rolling back tax credits by themselves the next two years. But you will see the Republican majorities will try to expand and introduce a whole series of new tax credits. They will uh, why why would they do that? Because they think that's what their job is. They think that that's what they that's what they think that's what they think they're sent there to do and or there are people that are asking them very specifically to do this thing. I mean, one of the things that's kind of crazy, I think that the state is run by 100 or 200 people, you know, uh, that, and that's about it, sadly. Okay, and, can you talk about that? Who, who <laughs> some of those am people am are? I one of those 200 people? Not yet. <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 I thought my silky voice was enough to run a state. I don't think state. either yeah. of us. No, no, but so, so, so uh, <laughs> somebody has, represents an industry, has an idea for um, a, a credit, a tax credit or a tax exemption, and, and they, put it in, they put it in terms that um, – that, um, that they can suggest how the state would be so much better off if we pursued this industry. And then they go and they find a sponsor and they push it and they push two or three or four years and, and it ultimately happens or doesn't happen. So um, what I think you'll see next year is you'll say, you'll, there'll be a bunch of people say, oh, we're finally doing tax credit reform. That'll be the headline. We're finally doing tax credit reform. The details will be that they'll be introducing three or four or five new tax credit programs. Now, I just want to play devil's advocate uh, here because when we're talking about historic and low income, it has some pretty boisterous supporters who say that those tax credits do a lot of right. good. Well, many of those are Democrats. Well, that, and, but what, how, would you, how would you push back and say this isn't a reasonable use of governmental expenditures to do either of those two things? Um, the Missouri has this, the largest or the second largest historical tax credit program in the entire correct, country. Correct. Okay, so it's not a question of are they good ideas or bad ideas. It's just uh, they're just too big. And mm -hmm. the same for uh, low-income housing. Our low-income housing tax credit program is somewhere uh, to only eight, nine total states have the same both state and federal. So, um, look, the, it took a lot of legislative effort to create these programs. These programs are wildly profitable to those that use them, though they'll come back and tell you they're not wildly profitable. They are very well protected. In these next two years, there's no chance that you will cap those two programs by themselves. No chance at all. Never happened. Uh, there is a chance that they'll get some caps in exchange for a bunch of new programs. Mm -hmm. It'll cost the state more money immediately. It will not be a reform. It'll be 
data center credit, freight forwarder credit, I mean, all kinds, a long list of credits that, um, that will come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it'll be marketed as, oh, we did reform. Look, we, we, uh, we capped these two programs. Now, I want to get back to these 100 or 200 people. Right. Uh, joking aside, are these people in government? Is it a mix of people mix. in it's government it's, it's, and it's, business it's, leaders? It's, it's, How would you characterize well, that? Well, it's, it's, um, it's the lobbyists for business groups. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's the business groups themselves, lobbyists for the groups. It's, it's the, all the different labor leaders. It could be trial attorneys. A t- a teacher advocates, you know, again, these are all people that are, sure. their, their job is to advocate in, inside of government. Um, individual business leaders, business groups, uh, you know, different different uh, PACs on both sides of the aisle. Could be, you know, um, PACs that are interested in you know, alternative energy, and there could be PACs that are interested in more conservative principles. And, uh, and to the extent that each of those groups have members, then, you know, maybe the members, but I, you know, to the extent the members know exactly what they're advocating for, I'm not so sure. So at the end of the day, and I've actually shared this with other people who have been around government a lot longer than I, and they say, oh, you're wrong. It's, it's not 200 people. It's probably 50 or 60. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's have a little bit of the backdrop of what, what the race to succeed you is. You have Jill Shoup, who's been on this show before, mm-hmm. has raised a lot of money, and I think is by all intents and purposes seen as a strong candidate. And then you have three Republicans who are running. Right. I think there are really two there are major really two. ones. Right. Jack Spooner and Jay Ashcroft. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay Ashcroft, obviously, is the son of former auditor, governor, U.S. senator, and attorney general John Ashcroft. Now, do you think that Republicans are going to be able to keep that seat, or do you think that that might be one of the seats that goes Democratic this year? I think it's a big challenge. So, again, it's 45-55. That's a score. Yeah, but that's assuming you have that's a an strong turnout, and Democrats right. often don't turn out well in off years. I understand that. Uh, when you look around the state, though, when you look at any seat that's 45-55, Democrat or Republican, it often is times— where there's not even a race. So, I mean, again, it's, yes, right. I, I agree with the fact that it's an off-cycle election that narrows the spread. There's nothing, you know, it's not a lot to vote for in November. That helps um, Republicans, traditionally Republican voters, come to vote whenever there's a chance to vote. Democrats vote more so in presidential years. Um, but it's kind of flipped this time. So last time when I ran, there was a very contentious, um, high-profile primary on the Democratic side. And this time we've got a primary in the Republican side. Well, and you also had the Republican wave at the top. There was this, you know, huge, uh, very competitive Senate race. And then there was the Republican wave nationally. And it ended up being that Roy Blunt handily won. I mean, Tom Schweig all, all knocked those, off the state auditor. True. Which, didn't that yeah. kind of help you a little bit? Well, but except that we actually had less turnout than we projected. Okay. okay. And you only, okay. you only won by 100 votes. 100 votes 100. or so. Yeah. But yeah. continue. Yeah, so um, so I think that the challenge is, is multiple fold. So it's a Democratic district that doesn't have a primary. Um, it has a candidate, Jill, who's been in elective office of some sort of the other for the better part of a decade. You know, school board, uh, creep court council, house rep. Um, the Democrats completely c- cleared the field for her well in advance. And so she's been, you know, I ran a, a very serious 14-month campaign, you know, day after day after day, uh, boots on the ground in the community. She's been doing the same thing for a couple of years. And right. so she's a very, so now the challenge, now the thing with Jill is, I mean, Jill is, um, I heard on your show last fall, she was already campaigning. She's a bipartisan, moved to the center, worked with Republican type of candidate, which of course is not true at all. I mean, she she will be probably the most, if she were to get to the state senate, she'd be the most liberal state senator. And I think actually she'd be the spokesperson for lots and lots of liberal causes. I, I you know, I as a state senator, I interact with everybody in my district, and there are a lot of very strong liberal voices in but my district. But is that necessarily a downside in that district? I mean, some people might like well, that. Well, I, I think we'll find out, yeah. you know. Now, uh, I've got to start, since Jason brought this up, 
self-advertising. I've got a story which may be on the site by the time people are listening to this, which has some exclusive stuff about Shoop and Ashcroft mm. as far as some stuff that's being rolled out in the next couple of weeks, which the bottom line is there's a bunch of big heavy hitters who are coming in for both sides this month. Now, are you endorsing in that race? No, I'm not. And, um, you know, again, and Jack Spooner is the other candidate. And Jack's a, I mean, he's a remarkable guy in that he has, he has tremendous uh, networks of people in the district. Because he's raised a decent amount of money, he's too. A, if, right. Again, I think if, if Jack were the only candidate, he would give Jill a very hard race. If Jay's the only candidate, he would give Jill yeah. a very hard race, so too. It'll be, it'll be, yeah, but continue. Yeah. So, but no, it, it was interesting because um, much was made, you know, when, when Chris Coster kind of came out early last summer and yes, kind of coalesced around the party. I was there. We gotta go. So they need, to, they need to put up some victories, you know. So I think this district, the 24th, this is the one they want to call a victory. You know, this they want this district. The oh, Democrats. Oh, Democrats. Yeah. And, uh, Democrats. And the unsaid thing, of course, is that Jolie Justice's district is I, I, I is is probably may right. go Republican. Uh, so this, it might cancel my, each my other. Dist- my district goes out. my district that will be an underreported fact unless you report it. And I don't want to throw Ed Schiefer <laughs> under the bus. Right. But now, I mean Jolie that's a- Justice so people know is a Democrat from the western side of the state, but her district came over here. She was a Senate minority leader and she's leaving. Right. And the bottom line is that yeah, district so, so the district it, just as your right. district right. is democratic leaning that seat is Republican-leaning. Correct. Uber. Yeah. So, so, so if the Democrats hold Jeffco and Jill wins the 24th, it's still a 24 to 10 majority. Right. Okay. So there's no there's no no gains will have been made, um, but the, I think it'll be spun as such. So, so what do, what's next for you? I, I think I heard you on the Senate floor that you bought a farm in St. Charles County. In is Augusta, that true? yeah. So are you growing wine? Are you growing corn? It's already well, grapes are already growing you there. You grow grapes. I yeah, make so wine taste. So a, can I buy some of your wine soon? No, 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 no. Oh. Uh, no, the uh, it it it's a it's a century old farm that mm-hmm. was, began in the pro, during Prohibition. Uh, which is pretty cool for me because my grandfather was, uh, um, he was, a, he was a bookie and used to make gin in his bathtub. There now? Great, there great. There's, there's four, uh, the Augusta Winery nearby okay. has used the land for about 30 years to grow grapes on it. And there's also um, a small orchard that a local orchard has tended to up until three or four years ago when the when the previous owner died. And orchard kind of. of- uh, it's a, it's called a, it's it's a Sentinel Orchard and so is it all grapes or is there other stuff there's besides a, there's grapes? There's some uh, apples as well. Well, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Right. So okay. grapes. So um, what my pro- the project the, the homestead burnt down about ten years ago. So this year we're trying to resurrect the farm um, and then I'm going to build a, a, mod- a small little home like our empty nester home. And then when that's done, I'll move out of St. Louis County to St. Charles County, and that will be my uh, eastern side of the state address. I work in Clayton, as you guys know. Right. And then I commute every weekend to Kansas City, where my family lives, my daughter's training. And that'll be another four years at least that I'll do that. So Now let's em- 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 emphasize your daughter's training for the Olympics. Yeah, so three years ago this month, well, that was the hope, and uh, that's a, that's the dream. She's a, But she's a, she has a she's chance. She's a gymnast. She's correct. a gymnast in, in, in June of eleven. We relocated our family so that she could train in Blue Springs to, and it's a gym that has national team gymnasts. And so she's done well enough these first three years. We know she's going to be there for the next four. And, uh, and you know, so uh, my decision not to run was an easy one because yeah. my family doesn't live in St. Louis County anymore and, and I have to commute. It, it was again. not surprising, but I think generally people were like, well, that's a good reason not to run for re-election to support your daughter's uh, dreams. So. Yeah, well, it, it, I guess people were shocked. I mean, people don't normally give up. Uh, you know, incumbents don't normally not run for whatever they're running yeah, for. Yeah, especially when you, uh, state Senate seats are, uh, people are putting up 200 
$250,000 of their own money. I'm shocked by it. I'm shocked That's by a St. Charles reference. So I guess my last question before we let you go is, have we seen the last of John Lamping on the ballot? Or are you going to run for, like, St. Charles County executive no, well, in a few years? Um, the, the short-term plan, I'm, I'm, I'm challenged by the fact that I go back and forth. You know, So that, that really cuts into doing any kind of grandiose things. The, uh, I'm, I'm talking to a bunch of different groups about playing a role, uh, some capacity, kind of more from the think tank research side of uh, politics and maybe pursue some of my ideas through, through them as a platform. And, uh, and I, think, I think ended up on a ballot is uh, kind of a random act of God thing. It, it, all the, sun, the stars and moons have to align. Um, there's no, I'm not ambitious towards being on the ballot, and, and that is on a plain field full of nothing but ambitious people. So the likelihood that the, the C's part and I end up being on the ballot is probably pretty slim. So are you, do you regret running, or do you learn a lot of, from running? As, is there one thing that you would want as a parting epitaph of what you learned from your four years in the state no, Senate? No, no, well, from a personal and a very selfish perspective, it was a, it was a very intriguing and interesting life experience. It was really good. I and I've, I've had a chance to, to go to school out east, work on Wall Street, do all kinds of different things, work around the world, raise families. I mean, and in the scheme of all those things, it was an interesting life experience. I have a much greater sense of, um, of the goings-ons in the world, I think, and how the reality of what is the political situation. And, and, and maybe it's something that's just that. It's just a life experience. Or maybe it's something that it's knowledge that I uh, build on and, and use some other time in the future. So. Well, as a parting comment before we, we sign off, I just want to say that your staff, Janae Newstead, was one of the most helpful people I've ever dealt right. with when trying to get a hold of you. I email her, and literally within minutes you call. I hope she gets another job somewhere else. Well, this no, is an example for other legislators. I, I, yeah. don't, usually, I don't usually like uh, praise staff, but that yeah. was really no, Janae, exceptional Janae, stuff. Uh, Janae Newstead and Holly Chuck were both on my campaign. My campaign was during the, the Depression for attorneys. So Janae was out of law school. Holly was out of law school. There, But no, seriously, I had, I had a bunch of law sc uh, school recent grads that are now in politics. So one works for the caucus. Uh, one works for Peter Kinder. I mean, they're all around the Capitol. So. So, but, yeah, no, that, my staff, I was blessed by them. So there to close go. us out, you can read all of our stories at sdlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe at? Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow John. At John Lamping. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.